Today's episode of Seven the Edge is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash setting edge. That's audibletrial.com slash setting edge. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash setting edge. I'm popping bottles tonight. Come do for a fight if you're ready. Yeah. I'm popping bottles, baby. I'm popping bottles, baby. I'm popping bottles tonight. Welcome to episode 59 of the Said the Edge podcast. I'm Justice Mosqueda. You can find me on Twitter at J U M O S Q. I'm here with my co host, Charles McDonald. You can find him on Twitter at 4Verts. And we're here with ESPN's, The Undefeated's, The Nickel Packages, Dominic Foxworth. You can find him on Twitter, at Foxworth24. Say what's up to the people, Fox. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Well, we just really want to reach out, and uh, we, we enjoy your, all your work on ESPN, especially when you go on with the uh, Dan Leverton show. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's Big fans. Else. Huge fans. Yeah, huge fans. Yeah, that's a fun. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm actually in Miami now. You can probably see behind me. Uh, I'm in a hotel room. So, yeah, I'm doing HQ all weekend. I'm going in for radio tomorrow all day. So I like coming to Miami, too, especially in November. It's a good time. Oh, yeah. Uh, were you in town at all for the uh, Miami-Notre Dame game? No. Actually, we were um, We were planning on coming down and interviewing, doing an interview with Ed Reed, but those um, those plans fell through. So I was actually pretty disappointed because it would have been fun to be at that game. That seemed uh, like an incredible atmosphere. Yeah. Just- how, how, do you, how do you spend your college football Saturdays? Are you just, like, flipping the channel on the couch, or how, how is that going on? uh yeah right i wish i got um three kids uh the oldest is uh will be seven next month so uh normally soccer games kids birthday parties running around all day until uh uh, maybe i'll catch a bit of the evening game but i normally just recap uh catch up on everything a little later last saturday i actually got to watch the game because um the kids were going to their grandparents so i got to watch the the uh, Miami game and it was fun Uh, what happened what i had hoped and what i thought happened did happen so i enjoyed that you thought Miami was going to beat them down? Well, I'm not going to say that I thought it was going to be a blowout, but um, I think actually Booger McFarlane just before the game kind of uh, said what I was thinking is when given the opportunity, I go with speed and athleticism over power. So uh, that's what I think that's partially just because I'm biased towards myself because I'm not a big, powerful guy. I'm speed and athleticism, so I'm partial to those type of players. So I think I want and, and just in general, I think growing up, uh, all of us kind of appreciated the Miami um, attitude much more than Notre Dame. So I think if I had to pick one of those teams that I felt like I identified with more, certainly Miami over Notre Dame. So it was a it was a fun game to watch. All right. uh, so you played cornerback in the NFL, which is why uh-huh. you said uh, you favored some of the uh, faster guys. <laughs> but uh, I think it's really interesting, kind of looking at some of these young cornerbacks that are on the rise this year. Uh, I think the big three that were all first on draft picks in the past past three years are uh, Marcus Peters, Jalen Ramsey, and Marshawn Lattimore. Which one of your, of those three, who's your favorite guy to watch on that list? That's a tough question. I mean, I actually, I just finished watching the, um, the coaches film of the saints most recent game where they blew out the, the bills and, Marshawn didn't do anything in that game that was particularly exceptional, but it just like the level of discipline and coverage and technique that he shows uh, for a rookie 
is kind of uncommon. So I'd like to see what he what he becomes. And I think what Jalen Ramsey has done in the league for a couple years now has been exceptional. He's a big, physical, aggressive guy. Um, I, I like Marcus Peters, but I think I wish I played more like Marcus Peters because I think if you watch any games, you always hear um, the announcers say about Marcus Peters is that he's kind of a risk taker. Risk taker. He'll jump routes and sometimes give up deep touchdowns, but also get a pick six. I was a much more conservative player, and I, when I look at him, I'm like, man, wish I would have just taken more risk. And I, I mean, I admire him for that, but I don't uh, necessarily identify with it as much as I do with the other guys. So, ha- have you ever? Has any receiver ever made you want to have the reaction that Jalen Ramsey did, where he's just yelling <laughs> one catch, six yards at someone? Like, was there ever that one guy for you when you were playing at the NFL? Um. I mean, I, I think I carried some – I remember my – I guess it was my – it might have been my rookie year or my second year. But anyway, when I was in college, I was a sophomore, and we played Florida State, and Anquan Bolden just just physically beat me up and had a good game. And that was the only time I played him. He went to the league. And then when I got to the league, I saw him again in Arizona when I was playing with um, – with Denver and before the game, like I just had it in my head that I was going to like fight him or lose my mind or whatever, just like out of revenge. And so I remember like just picking with him and pushing him and just trying to make him mad. And he, because in the college game, he was like that guy, like he was just unnecessarily physical. So I was like, all right, we're going to do this again, but I'm going to be ready for it. And I'm even going to initiate it. And so uh, I did. And, after a few plays, he just was looked at me like, the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, it like snapped me out of it. And I, I kind of realized, that, oh, this isn't college. And he doesn't actually hate me. I don't actually hate him. But uh, I, I played well in that game. So I felt good about that. And then later on, we ended up um, teammates in Baltimore. And he's an awesome guy. And he's doing a bunch of stuff with um, with social justice now, which is very impressive and cool. So, yeah. I love him as a person now, but I, I remember quite clearly going into that Arizona game. Like, I don't really care what the outcome is, but Anquan Bolden's going to know that he played against me. <laughs> Who were some of the loudest talkers you had as teammates at cornerback? Like, anyone like Jalen Ramsey, where he said no. in a post game interview, he's like, yeah, this is what I do every week, just kind of jaw back and forth all game long. Yeah. No, I've um, I played with some great defensive backs, and I played uh, with Champ out in Denver, Champ Bailey. He might have been the most quiet guy like on and off the field. He didn't do a, a bunch of ch- talking, but just in general, I didn't, I was never really around a bunch of um, defensive backs that did a lot of talking. I mean, everyone kind of talked back and with receivers when they were uh, being a little mouthy, but for the most part, most of my teammates, uh, not at, not at, um, not at corner at least, but uh, most of my teammates were pretty even kill. Are you surprised at all by how good Jacksonville's defense has been this year? I mean, they've, been, I guess, the best defense in the league for most part of the season by a pretty large mile. I mean, that pass defense has been absolutely suffocating. And uh, Calais Campbell might, or not might be, he's probably the uh, free agent yeah. signing of the year so far. Yeah, I mean, I think he's defensive player of the year, and uh, he's been incredible. That D line's been incredible. Um, the corners are awesome, Boye and, and Ramsey. And I think coming into the season, looking at them on paper, I expected them to be great, but that doesn't always pan out. There are lots of teams that on paper seem to be good or your units in general you think will be good and don't pan out. They've been everything we expected and more. So I'm not surprised by it. But I do think the linebackers don't get as much attention. I think in the modern NFL, having linebackers that play well against the run, 
but can cover in space is um, like is a difference maker. I don't think most teams have linebackers that that they can trust against um, uh, good pass catching receivers, and that's kind of where the game is going. It seems like you get those short um, passes or or running backs lining up in a receiver position. You get that almost more often than you get a good old fashioned eye formation ISO downhill, which is what linebackers are kind of used to um, engaging in. And we see we see more and more. It seems like every year that you know guys are quarterbacks are throwing balls you know within five yards of the line of scrimmage, eight yards of the line of scrimmage, even more you know underneath coverages. Do you think that that that's going to? I mean, it's important, but is, are teams going to react to that and you know spend spend more you know e- either in the draft or free agency to kind of lock up you know either you know linebackers or you know uh, slot receivers or you know strong safeties that are playing close to the box? Any of those guys who could play those shallow zones spots? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we've we've already seen some more of that, but the problem is these type of athletes don't necessarily exist. They're like they're hard to find, especially at linebackers, guys who are physical enough to engage with guards and centers and tackles because that's what linebackers do in running plays. Like a guard mm-hmm. will do a combo block up into um, trying to block them, so you have to engage with the three hundred fifteen, three hundred twenty pound guard, and then also be athletic enough to to um, cover. I don't know who's uh, McCaffrey or cover somebody like that. So people would pay a ton of money if they could find that guy, but those guys are are hard to find and, and few and far between. Aesthetically, do you how do you mind the change in the game from you know I guess downfield shots to all these three yards and we're going to see if we can make plays after the catch? Like, do you like watching that style of football? Because I I find it like excruciating sometimes. Yeah, I mean I I, I could understand that, but I, I mean. I think I watch football in a different way than a lot of people. It's just like I enjoy trying to when I when I have a chance. If I'm not like in a in like a group setting or something like that, I enjoy watching the game and trying to figure out um, what the coaches are trying to do to each other and and where their opportunities and trying to predict what they're going to do next. And so um, I don't necessarily mind those short passes. And I don't know. I think that more has been made of that than is actually true. I think a lot of teams are scared in playing this short passing game, but there are plenty of teams out there that I think are, are taking big shots. I mean, uh, and, and just in general, I think I, I enjoy watching creativity. So what'll get me upset is if I just watch uh, an offense or a defense, just line up and do the same boring thing time after time, week after week. And, even whether they have success or not, I'm just like, oh, well, this isn't fun. But when I see like the the um, uh, the changes by the defense to address where, where they're weak, and then the offense come back and try something different, and I see a, a successful play, and then see like the complementary play action off of that later, or the complementary play that looks like it but attacks uh, in a slightly different way, like that is what I enjoy about watching football. You were talking about create. Creativity and uh, creativity and deep shots like that. That's basically what the Los Angeles Rams are based off of right now. They basically overturned their entire receiver unit. Um, and, you know, they, I have seen a bunch of stats where basically like they, they've been the most improved offense since like 19, 1956 or something like right. that. So ha, did that surprise you? Like, did you think that Goff and, you know, McVay and everyone there, Sammy Watkins or not Sammy Watkins, Robert Woods has uh, everything, you know, did you think that all of that would come together, you know, in basically yeah. a snap of a finger? Yeah, um, I wish I could have seen that coming. I, I can say that I was a big supporter of the McVay hire in general, of like going outside of the tradition. I think that that is something that is um, 
underappreciated is how important. Like it's a it's a volatile move. It's it could be awful if you got hired. And by going outside of tradition, I just mean like they hired a, an extremely young coach in McVay. Like you can that could either go really well or really bad. I think when you make decisions like that that are out of the ordinary, and I think obviously it's gone gone really well for them. But I think it's something that we should have seen. Like looking at it now, it seems obvious. Like they have plenty of talent. But I think the the big question mark was we assumed that um, golf was bad because he had a bad season last year. And I think we all are guilty of sometimes uh, underappreciating how complicated a game football is and how many variables go into a particular player or team playing well. And if a player doesn't play well, we often just say that player is bad. But uh, maybe he's not in the right system, which it seems now that Jared Goff is, I mean, he may not be a Hall of Fame quarterback, but I don't think anybody can consider him a bad quarterback or a bust anymore. And the only thing that's changed is a new coach. And they brought in a, a couple other receivers, but the big change has been the coach. So I've been impressed. I can't say I saw it coming, but uh, I can say that it it seems surpri- It seems kind of obvious now that uh, none of this is happening. It's like, oh, yeah, they had great, talented young players. And all they needed was a smart coach who was willing to build a, a system around their talent and not necessarily try to force a square peg into a round hole. Yeah, I, I really like watching the transformation of that offense from last year to this year, not just in terms of their output, statistical output, but just what they're doing on the field. If you watch them last year, it seemed like almost every passing play, all the routes are being run within like 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. Right. So it was super easy to cover. And then I guess your number one receiver was probably Tavon Austin for the most part. Right. And that really kind of restricts the running lanes for Gurley. And just to see that offense uh, – evolve you know last year Gurley called it a middle school offense and now uh they're out here running you know that zone like play action zone stuff that Kyle Shanahan liked to run in Washington and Atlanta uh even McVay said that he took some stuff from uh Andy Reid's playbook this year like the shovel read option stuff so just right. to see them obviously like continuing or continuing to evolve and upgrade what they do on offense is, is pretty refreshing and a, a huge turn from last year yeah, it's been fun to watch them uh, turn it around, and I'm I'm happy for golf and Sammy Watkins guys who haven't been who are obviously talented but haven't been getting the attention they deserve, and Todd Gurley who had that um that sophomore slump last year. Like I'm sure it's refreshing to be in a situation where your coach isn't isn't coaching not to lose and is willing to to take some chances. Yeah, and another unit that I want to talk to you about that's kind of fallen off from last year uh, is the Giants' defense, where they were one of the elite units in the game last year, and now you could argue that they might be the worst defense in the NFL. Now, when you watch them, do you think that's kind of like the same thing we are talking about the Rams from last year, where it's a scheme problem and they're just overly predictable, or do you think maybe it's a situation these guys kind of checking out for yeah. part of the season? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like I was surprised, too. I thought they would be much more, obviously, I thought they'd be much more competitive than uh, getting one win. Uh, and um, I think it'd be, it's really difficult, obviously, to boil it down to one reason why they aren't good. But, I mean, they've had um, a tremendous amount of problems with uh, with injuries. And I think their offense offensive ineptitude is, like, part of the problem with their defense. If you can't keep the ball on offense, if you can't change field position, if you can't do those things, it puts a lot more pressure on the defense. And I think that goes um, underappreciated when talking about the, the decline. And again, they've had injury issues that hurt. And then when you 
you're uh, as much as you're they're all professionals and they go out and play hard or try to go out and play hard every week. Like they're all human. So it would be um, be foolish to think that there is no there's not a psychological impact there from being one in seven or one in eight. And there's not a psychological impact that carries over to how they prepare for the game during the week. Like it's it's really hard to spend an extra few hours watching film or studying the game plan when you're like, for what? Um, we can't go to the playoffs. We're, we're terrible. Um, and it's and when you're on the field and whether you're conscious of it or, or not, I think it influences the way that you that you behave. So it's unfortunate. It's disappointing because they have certainly have plenty of talent, but I'm sure there will be uh, some changes up there pretty soon. As someone who watches, you know, defensive backs at this level and, you know, you have a really good grasp on it. Do you think that defensive back almost on a year-to-year basis is probably the most volatile position in the sport? Like, it really does seem like if a guy is even a step slower, if he's even dinged up a little bit, like, just the the level of, of athleticism that you have to have to be a shutdown number one corner, um, you, you can't really lose that step. Like, we've seen, you know, Patrick Peterson, guys like that, who have, you know, one horrible year, and then they end up bouncing back. But, like, for that one year, it's almost, like, red-marked for 16 games. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's. I think that, that that's important. Obviously, I think um, cornerback is probably the most difficult position to play physically, like being able to um, anticipate and react to some of the best athletes in the world with the most accurate quarterbacks in the world. All doing it all backwards is pretty difficult. So it's hard if you have any injuries. But I think, again, I just go back to the kind of seems like it's becoming the theme of of uh, the podcast is that there's so many other variables that impact. Like we talk about how good Jalen Ramsey and AJ Boye are out in Jacksonville, but I, I think we'd be lying if we don't include the D line and how good that they are. Like it's a lot easier to cover for two and a half seconds than three and a half seconds. Like that's a, it's a long time out there and it's a lot easier to cover when there's a defensive tackle barreling down on the quarterback and he can't be accurate. Those things uh, make not to take anything away from those guys. They're terrific, but there's so many other things that that influence and uh, what coverages you're in. If you if your team can't stop the run, the corners will be isolated a lot more and have um, difficulty. So all those things matter, and the type of corners that uh, and the type of receivers that you're facing makes uh, your job so much more difficult. And they change the rules every year. It seems like they get more and more difficult for cornerbacks. So. It gets harder and harder, but I think uh, the guys who are willing to do it and able to do it certainly deserve all the um, accolades that they get because it's the hardest job in football as far as I'm concerned. All right, uh, switching gears uh, a little bit, we wanted to ask you a little bit about this whole Jerry Jones versus Roger Goodell or him trying to block Roger Goodell's extension. You were the president of the NFLPA uh, in 2012, so you kind of you ha- have like an inner – the inside view of how all this stuff works. How how realistic would it be for Jerry Jones to even be able to do something like that, block Roger Goodell's extension? Yeah, I mean, I I, w- I don't try not to make a habit out of um, doubting Jerry Jones, what he can pull off, but I, <laughs> I, I think it's um, relatively unlikely that he'll be able to pull this off, especially as public as it's become, because the all the other owners have egos too just as big as jerry jones and now it's not just jerry against roger it seems like it's jerry against the compensation committee and many of of the other owners in the um in the nfl so i think it's six people on the compensation committee so i'm not sure how much support jerry has from the rest of the owners my guess would be not very much 
But that's what you need is uh, you need to build a constituency within the owners group to be able to force these type of things to, to happen. And uh, Jerry's been able to do that many times. Like uh, he's he was instrumental behind the L.A. move from what I've read. And he's instrumental behind building that stadium and all the things that there have been many things in the history of the league that Jerry Jones has orchestrated it's because he's managed to curry favor uh, with uh majorities and two-thirds in many cases of the owners it, it would not appear that he's done that just yet so i would be doubtful that he's going to win this particular battle so there was news that came out that said you know basically some owners are thinking about trying to force jerry jones's hand into selling the team do you think that that in is in any way possible yeah i mean i, I think that there is a i read that there is a bylaw in um, their agreement that allows them to be able to do that, but they have to prove that he is kind of being, that his actions are severely detrimental to the league as a whole. And I mean, I think something like that will be tied up in court for quite some time. And I don't think that the owners want that necessarily. I think the difference between um, Jerry Jones and many of the owners is they don't want to be in the middle of, uh, they don't want to be on TV every day. They don't want to be in the middle of this big, embarrassing public fight I think they just wanted to go away and i think what would happen if they tried to take jerry's team is a big embarrassing public fight and the only person who's not afraid of that is jerry jones do you think most of this stems from the way the ezekiel elliott thing got handled you think that's why jerry's so mad i mean it seems like it it seems like the uh uh the motivation for all of this like that's the the one thing that's changed in their relationship i know he's pointed to other issues for why uh, he's trying to um, kind of have this this coup, this ousting, um, but I, I don't know. I don't know how credible those those things are. If you remember, before the season started, Jerry was very clear about how he did not expect any suspension for Ezekiel Elliott because there was no evidence. And now uh, it seems like quite a coincidence that it's all changed uh, since Ezekiel started to miss games. Now, who knows? I know Jerry. Uh, supposedly Jerry was behind the Papa John's thing and he hasn't been happy with how Roger handled um, all the anthem demonstrations. But I mean, it is kind of shocking that given all the um, black marks uh, on the NFL from concussions to domestic violence, all the black marks in the recent history of the NFL, that Jerry Jones has been completely supportive of the leadership uh, until they take his running back. Yeah, I was gonna ask. Like, so were you were you at the table with these when you guys were negotiating the CBA and stuff? Like, were yeah. were NFL owners talking crazy like this? Because it seems like almost every single time an NFL owner opens his mouth, it's just like, I cannot believe you just said that. Oh yeah, I mean, I, it was it was a long process and um, hundreds of meetings. So there was certainly. Um, some getting to know each other and there was certainly some surprises in what the owners thought and were willing to say in front of us. But, uh, I mean, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. Like, I don't know what you, uh, what else to expect from like billionaires who, uh, people kind of, I guess coddle is the right word, but, um, uh, it's not the right word, but they certainly, people certainly accommodate them in many times. And if you're in front of them and, and, um, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think many of them view the players as uh, less than deserving of uh, sitting at the same table across from them and negotiating. And so, I mean, that uh, it's not true for all of the owners, but for some of the owners, like 
it bled through and you could see that very clearly. But um, sooner or later, I think it came a time where um, they had they realized that that they had to engage with us if they wanted um, anything to get done. All right. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> or not awesome, but it's just a lot to take. You know? yeah. I like having that uh, point of view. Let's jump into uh, some of these listener questions before we let you go. Uh, the first sure. one from at Andrew M two Oh six, nine, four Oh seven, three. When he was playing, what was his favorite coverage call? Or, so that, that's to you. Uh, um, it's a good one. Um, I, I don't know. I, it depends. So I, I personally like, well, actually it doesn't depend. I think, uh, just any sort of zero blitz. So zero blitz is when you don't have a safety and it's an all-out blitz. And I think that's counterintuitive as you would think that um, you wouldn't want to be out there all by yourself. But the fact of the matter is uh, when you had a zero blitz, you would always have the offense outnumbered. So it would e- it was coming out quick. It was either going to be a deep pass quick or a quick pass um, from the snap or like a, a slant or a go. Um, they didn't really have time to run intermediate routes so I just loved that it was um, it was it was decided and you were kind of out there. You had to either break up the pass, get an interception or make a tackle. And so the touchdown. So it's it's high risk. But I certainly enjoyed that more than uh, kind of being in cover one without a blitz where it's like if your D line doesn't get any pressure, you're out there all day. And that's that's tough. Did you ever find like a lot of these teams now use uh, like pattern match coverages or carry coverages? Did you ever find those to be, I guess, confusing or overwhelming when you were when you were playing, or did other guys get confused with those? No, not really. I mean, it's something that you prepare for all week, and most of those things are born out of necessity. Where you, uh, the offense is smart and talented, so they create plays to beat specific coverages. So you have to sometimes um, tweak your traditional coverage responsibilities to make it work. So you have words to communicate it and. I mean, most guys could handle it. It wasn't too too difficult or too complicated. Okay. Um, what what was what was the easiest play to call uh, at the line of scrimmage? Like you hear the quarterback audible, and like ninety percent of the time, if it's got an R in it, it's going to the right. If it's got an L in it, it's going to the left. Is it the whole Sunday, Monday, Tuesday thing? Like, are you mad at your defensive line if it's they hear Sunday and they don't go off on first snap? Or what uh, was the easiest thing to call? You mean like? Um, based on like understanding their cadence and yeah figure, like and figuring it out yeah yeah i mean pretty much like you go you go anyone could watch a game on sunday and you'll hear you know sunday monday tuesday and for the most part it's sunday first sound monday right. one tuesday two right so i, I mean i think the uh, teams often like would change things but it's it's uh they wouldn't change them in the game necess- necessarily so you figure out you try to figure out some of the stuff early in the game but most of the time, you try to get a look at hand signals because the uh, at least the good quarterbacks would change that stuff. Like you can't, you couldn't figure out what um, like Peyton Manning would do dummy calls all the time and change. Like it was almost impossible to figure out what he was talking about throughout the course of a game. So um, as for like snap count and those sorts of things, that's that only gets you but so far. But if you can get a, a, a beat on what they're using the hand signals for, because they normally have three or four hand signals for different routes. And, and you know, if they are uh, based on your defense, I think that's the most important thing is understand what they're seeing and what disguise you're showing, what defense you're in. And if they audible, you can pretty much have a good idea of what you're going to see. All right. Uh, next question from at football rave. How likely is a lockout when the CBA expires? And what do you think the players key demands will be? Yeah, I mean, 
I think it's too far away, honestly, to be able to determine um, how likely or, or unlikely uh, any sort of work stoppage, be it lockout or strike it, will be. I know that the union has been saying that it's almost a virtual certainty, I think is the exact words that DeMore Smith used. So, I mean, I guess I'll take his word for it. I wouldn't must, I wouldn't say that I, I knew it was a certainty myself, but I'm also not the executive director of the union, so I guess he knows better than me. And as for um, things that the players uh, think are important, again, like it's those things change from time to time. When I was in there, player safety and um, uh, flexibility in off season and rest time, like those things were important for us. Then I, I would suspect that we addressed those things uh, back then. And the probably what's always near the top of the list is compensation. So we'll see how how that changes. I'm not sure if. Um, if uh, the players are satisfied with their compensation, it seems every year around free agency time for basketball, NFL players start to get mad. So we'll see. We'll see uh, if they want to address that and how uh, much they're willing to sacrifice to change that. How do you feel about Thursday night football? Is that something that uh, you were you you had retired before that became like a weekly staple, right? Yeah, I played in a few Thursday night games, but um, I don't think it was as big as it is now. But uh, I played in. Uh, probably three or four of them. Um, I, I mean, I don't. They they stink. Like I don't, <laughs> uh, I don't know what else to say. Like they they're not fun to watch, uh, and players uh, don't enjoy them. It seems unsafe, but I mean, there's a lot of money attached to it. So I think that's been made clear that there's uh, a trade off that the league and the players are making um, to do that. And I, I mean, it, uh, Richard Sherman is somebody who I consider a friend. I was devastated to see what happened to him uh, in the last Thursday night game. How big do you think that impacts the Seahawks moving forward? Like how, how big of a loss do you think that is to them? Cause we saw Earl Thomas go down uh, right before the playoffs last year and saw how big of an impact that has. Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely significant. I think um, what Richard does or has done over the course of his career, I think has been exceptional. And I think that it's, that team, I mean, any team in the league is pretty delicate, and you never know which variable pulled out will uh, change the team dramatically. I think that what Richard has been able to do has been so impressive that it's going to be hard for them to, in my mind at least, it's going to be very hard for them to continue to play at the level that they, they've been playing on defense without him, especially given the fact that their D-line has not gotten the amount of pressure that they've been used to. So uh, it'll be significant. I think they've been waiting not waiting. Russell Russell Wilson has stepped up and carried a lot of offensive load. It's just been inconsistent and sporadic. So I think that if they're going to go deep this year, it's going to be a it's going to rely heavily on on that offense um, producing better than they have or producing at least more consistently than they have recently. Yeah, they got a big test Monday night with uh, Julio Jones and, and crew coming to town. So we'll get a good good look like right away of how that defense looks without. Uh, Richard Sherman. Uh, next question from at Kaysen Gupta 96. Is Justice a federal agent for his Martellus Bennett takes? So, Justice, you want to explain to Dominique your feelings on Martellus Bennett? It's just, uh, I'm a Packers fan, right? Um, but it's just, it's really weird to see someone who just like full on was like the the coaching staff is pressuring me to practice and then I'm, I'm shutting it down and then go straight to another team once he hits waivers. Like, can you 
Like, it seems very blatant that he quit and, like, whatever about that. But, like, can you remember a situation like that with, like, I mean, you don't have to name names or anything, but just, like, a teammate that you know who, like, it was that obvious where it was, like, we're out of it, I'm I'm out. I mean, I, I think older players sometimes that happens for, but, I mean, in this particular case, I, I'm on Team Marcellus, like, or Mar- Marcellus. I'm on Team Martellus because, like, here are your options. You go to Green Bay and play with Aaron Rodgers. Oh, Aaron Rodgers is gone. I'm gone. I'm gonna go play with Tom Brady. I think he wins. You need to stop hating. Get on team. Get on team Marty with me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm hurt. I'm just hurt. I mean, I, I think about your, in your own personal situation. Somebody was like, "Hey, come over here and work at this company. We'll work hand in hand. We'll be best friends. You'll be the best." And as soon as you get there, that person gets pneumonia. They don't come to work. You out of there. I don't want to be there no more. I'm good. Let me go move on somewhere else. So I'm I'm a Packers fan, and I've been offered to go to Green Bay during. The season several times, and I I just can't I just can't do it. I'm a I'm a West Coaster. I can't. I'm like every once in a while I'd be like, oh, I'll come see like a summer preseason game and like tour the Hall of Fame or something and get out immediately. But haven't been up to build up the nerve to go out there yet. Yeah, I didn't even I didn't even I just pointed out this on the field stuff. I didn't even point out the the fact that you have to live in Green Bay, like uh, or Appleton. I don't know where their facility is, but uh, I will take. Uh, well, I don't know. I guess Boston as a black man isn't great either. But. <laughs> <laughs> at least there's some nightlife and and uh and and other minorities yeah it's just funny because i feel like most people like you said would they would do the same thing martel's bennett he won a super bowl nine months ago he, <laughs> he obviously only came to the packers to play with aaron Rodgers. so like right. once aaron Rodgers is gone uh there's no reason to stay there and if you yeah, get- i mean i understand why your feelings are hurt but i am all about player empowerment I mean, I'm not going to lose any sleep for no Green Bay Packers. I'm good. I'd be more upset if something happened to a human being that I care about or just a human being in general. So, sorry, Packers and Packer fans. Marty's gone. And he won. He did win. He might win again at the end of the year. You're going to be real mad then. (laughs) All right. uh, Last question from our pal, uh, Derek Klassen at QB Class. Uh, When will... Gude Tama be the official mascot oh. for the for the uh, for the Thursday's nickels package. Uh, oh, Thursday nickel. Pa- I mean, I, I thought he was already. So it's uh, Minority Thursdays of the nickel package. So they, we do the nickel package, do the nickel package all week, five days a week with um, different hosts. And uh, the only non-white male hosts are Mina Kimes and myself. We do it on Thursday. And so during the beginning of the nickel package show, they do like this. It's like. Uh, weird little opening where they do a bunch of chanting and it's like football noises and one of the noises uh just sounds like the people are chanting gude so gude tama is like a animated uh japanese i think animated character that mina introduced me to a while ago that's kind of weird and funny so it sounds like they're saying gude so we made gude the mascot and he just became official right now so thanks for asking (laughs) all right well shout out to derek also shout out to mina for uh helping me reach out to you for this podcast uh all right so that's all we got do you have anything you want to let the people know as a jerk nope thanks for having me i just want to say mean as a jerk and that's it you have anything you're working on coming up that you want to let people know about hey i mean i'm i write every week for the undefeated and then you mentioned the nickel package podcast uh also obviously like i mentioned i'm on uh highly questionable all week and that about it. All right. Uh, that's going to conclude episode 59 of Setting the Edge. We'll be back on 
Wednesday, no Thursday before the Thursday night football game with their Week Eleven picks, and uh, get it together. I know I'm <laughs> falling apart. I'm falling apart right here. We we'll back on, on finish our... the game. <laughs> we we'll back on Thursday with our Week Eleven picks and uh, some other goodies. All right, 